Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. The straight pride parade in Boston has come and gone, but its effects are still being felt. The effort by a handful of right-wing provocateurs to shake things up succeeded, but probably not in any way they intended. The fallout from the parade has served to expose a rift developing in the region's criminal justice system. Three dozen counter-demonstrators who showed up to protest the straight pride parade were arrested and faced various charges. Some are violent offenses with allegations of assault on police officers. Others were nonviolent charges of disorderly conduct or resisting arrest. When some of the defendants appeared in court last Tuesday, things got interesting. The Suffolk County DA's office said it would proceed on the charges of violent offenses, but prosecutors said they were looking to dismiss nonviolent charges against seven defendants, with most agreeing to eight hours of community service. The problem? Boston Municipal Court Judge Richard Sinnott said no, he wouldn't allow the cases to be dismissed. That struck many as a sharp departure from his role as a judge, with Sinnott wading into territory generally reserved for prosecutors. Things got even more interesting on Wednesday, when a lawyer for one of the defendants tried to read from a 1991 court decision to argue that Sinnott was out of bounds in overruling the prosecutors. The attorney, Susan Church, read from the case telling the court that decisions not to prosecute are, quote, within the discretion of the executive branch of government, free from judicial intervention. A back and forth with Senate ensued in which he told her he would hear no more of the legal argument. When she continued, despite his warning, Senate ordered Church taken into custody. She was handcuffed and held for about three hours before the judge ordered her released. Susan Church has a lot of courtroom experience, but that experience was a first. She joins us on the podcast to talk about it all. Thank you so much for being here, Susan. Thank you for having me. So uh, it was uh, an unusual day, to say the least, in in court uh, for you. Can you just sort of give us a little bit of uh, an account of what happened? First of all, you were there defending a client that was facing what charge? She was facing charges of disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. But I was there on behalf of the National Lawyers Guild, uh, who has historically provided free representation to um, protesters as part of their mission statement of the organization. And I was in kind of in charge. It wasn't like a charge charge, but in charge of the lawyers that day and organizing representation. And I was assigned this um, first case that had gotten called. And um, it was a little tense because there was police officers in the courtroom as well as protesters. And the day before had been very tense from what I had read from media accounts and heard from other lawyers. So um, I walk into the courtroom, and this is the first unusual thing. And my client's standing there at the microphone, and the district attorney is talking. So the judge started the case without me, the lawyer, even though I had entered my appearance in on the case. So I was a little surprised at that. It's unlawful. Um, she's entitled to her lawyer to be in the room. It's really ex parte communication to have just the prosecutor on one side of an argument. But I didn't say anything, and I went to the to the microphone where I'm supposed to stand, and I'm listening, and he's uh, making what I believe is a tortured and honestly incomprehensible argument that a statute, the victim rights statute, somehow affects the separation of powers, which the, is a constitutional right. The judge is right. making yes, this. Yes, the judge is yeah, making judge this Senate. argument. And he's, he's going on and on and on with the prosecutor, asking repeated questions of the prosecutor. Um, <clears throat> and eventually he turns to me and says, okay, you know, it's your turn to talk. I actually asked if I could talk while the prosecutor was looking up some information. He said no, and so I was quiet. And then wait, has, has, has it already been, has the prosecution already said that they'd like to see this case 
the of first, her case dismissed. Yes. So I've I've recently listened to the recording. The first word she said was, "We are no processing this case because the case the the charges against this defendant lack particularity." So the police report, which is just kind of a general term for saying they're going to use their discretion or... Right, which... So you don't even have to explain why you give a no process. Prosecutors are in a habit of giving an explanation on no process, so in case they want to prosecute later, they have their statement of the reasons on the record, and that has legal ramifications later on. But she did give a reason, and the reason was that this police report was completely nondescript as to what each individual person did. It was just a mass arrest report without describing that what my client allegedly did or not did not do. Mm-hmm. That's a perfectly valid reason to dis, to null process a case. And I want to be clear that the charge was null process, not dismissed. There's been a lot of confusion in the media right. about that. I believe that there's legal authority both ways for the prosecutor to do it, but no one I've spoken to, no prosecutors, no defense attorneys have ever said that the judge had the authority to deny a null process. It's, right. it's, it's unheard of. Because there's kind of this distinction that they are two paths to usually to the same outcome, but one of them... The uh, judge has to accede to right. it. Right. I disagree. Right. And, but and even I, if you buy that argument... Even if you buy that, we weren't there. This wasn't exactly in right. that category. Exactly right. So... I start my argument, and I start by trying to debunk the idea that this statute that the judge is citing somehow relates. It doesn't. And then I try to cite the law, which this is really telling. This is the law that's really on point. So my trying to contradict the victim rights statute, no big deal, right? Like, because it's – he knows that's not a valid argument. It's I, not he must. valid in your view to, for uh, him to, to invoke I, that? No, there's no remedy provided in the statute. There would have to be a remedy provided in the statute for that to have any – uh, weight whatsoever, and there is no remedy provided in the statute. So, but fine, like he likes that argument because it helps him with the police, right? That's why he supported that argument. But the argument that he cannot get around, that he cannot challenge, that, that he has no leg to stand on is that there are cases exactly on point from the Supreme Judicial Court. As soon as I start reading those cases, he starts interrupting me. It's notable that, um, and I was interrupted. I haven't counted, but in listening to the tape, it was at least three, four times I was interrupted. At some point in time, I say, Your Honor, I'm trying – like I was interrupted so much I couldn't complete my argument and I couldn't make the arguments that I wanted to make or the statements I wanted to make or especially read this one particular case into the record and the citation from that case, the quote from that case. Which was essentially to make the point that – That he didn't have the authority to deny a null process. Right. Um, in fact, not it wasn't even denying a null process. The government had already entered the null process. So in, in all likelihood, the ca- there was no case to discuss because it should be gone. Anyways – and he says, like, I said, you, you keep interrupting me, Your Honor. I'm just trying to make my case. I just want to cite this case. And I knew that I was going to stop as soon as I was able to get this one case on the record. And the reason I was so insistent is because I have a legal duty to, A, you know, zealously represent my client, but, B, to make a record for an appeal. So if this was going to go up on appeal, if I hadn't made the right legal arguments, sometimes they could say, well, you didn't raise that issue, so you lose because you didn't raise it. And that's a fundamental fear that lawyers live with all the time is that they don't make the argument correctly and therefore you lose not because you're not right on the law but because you didn't make the argument correctly which is one of our like this is the type of thing lawyers wake up in the middle of the night going oh I didn't say that and I should have said it so Mm -hmm. that's what was kind of motivating me and I mean you can tell I speak really fast so I usually am able to get a lot of stuff into the judge he wasn't letting me get anything in and finally he says like I'm warning you and I was I was a little confused like what are you warning me about? Like, what am I doing wrong except reading the record? So I said to him, I'm not clear. And literally he said, that's it. And I was in handcuffs and held in contempt. 
And I like, it was so surreal. I like, I had my phone in my hand. I was looking at my associate, Heather Yance, like, what is happening here? Like, like, it was so weird. And they handcuffed me behind my back. The court officers, you know, they were the nicest. Like, you, I will not complain about the court officers at all. They were very, uh, honestly, I, they didn't say anything, obviously, because they're professionals, but I certainly got the feeling that they were aghast at what was happening. And I'm walking down the hallway, being led down to lockup, you know, this place that I've seen my clients for 25 years be led down this hallway. And I've, right. I've walked with them for 25 years as they're going down the hallway. And I'm like, A different it, experience. Huh? It's me. Like, I'm the one in handcuffs going down the hallway. And so the court officer was so nice. She kept saying, it's okay. You're going to be okay. It's okay. You're going to be okay. You know, and of course, when my clients get arrested, it's a very different experience for them. They right do not have someone telling them it's going to be okay, although they may sometimes, but they don't know if it's going to be okay. Like I kind of instinctively knew it would be okay, but you, you still have the doubt whether you're going to be at Nashua Street that night or not. Um, so you were down in the lockup, yeah, right so we, in the court, yep, in the courthouse? Right. So we go downstairs. Um, all the lawyers came down with me. People started desperately coming in and out of the the holding cell area where I was in the, I was in the area outside the holding cells. They kept coming down trying to help, trying to help, trying to help. And eventually the court officer is like, you have too many lawyers down here. You can pick three, like <laughs> three lawyers, that's it. And they take the um, handcuffs off once you were down there? They did take the yeah. handcuffs off, yeah. They were very respectful, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I, I wasn't, um, you know, the handcuffing part was jarring, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Like I was, my body started physically shaking at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And um, I all I kept kind of thinking was, well, what about my kids? I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. I was like, All right, wait a minute, are, are there school stuff picked up? What time am I, I going to get out of here tonight? And, okay, uh, you know, and I realized my son didn't have school. So then I started thinking, i got to call my husband. And my husband ha- happens to be a criminal defense attorney, but he also happens to be the immediate past chair of the Mass Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. So, And they have something called the Strike Force, which um, – uh, is the organization that hires lawyers to defend lawyers in exactly this situation. So I'm calling him, and he's not answering the phone. <laughs> and I'm so mad. Like, why won't you answer the phone? And I realize he's at a funeral. Like, mm. And I was like, oh, crap, he's at this funeral because a, a friend of ours died. And I was – anyway, so eventually he shows up. He's mad, man. Like, you know, he's not coming down as my lawyer. He's coming down as my husband, and he sees me, and, you know, it was – very upsetting to him, too. Um, lots of people rushed to help. Like, uh, I heard that a bunch of legal aid lawyers started a march to the courthouse to start a protest. John Swamley, who's a, a really great – he was my former uh, supervisor in law school. He showed up to help. Um, many, many people. I, I, I'll forget names right now. But, yeah. but then eventually, know. I mean, you were held several hours yeah. and then brought back up to uh, Judge Senate's court. Room. So uh, I can't talk about it now, but some things happened downstairs that were, in my opinion, highly inappropriate. Um, and then I you was can't talk because it may it, it may affect be... future issues with the case. But mm-hmm. things happened. I go upstairs. Um, my lawyers, my lawyers, the entire time were preparing an emergency petition to the Supreme Judicial Court, um, and that was another interesting thing. So I'm a criminal defense attorney, and you know, honestly, like sometimes I don't get time to call every single client back that calls me every day and my immigration clients too. And, you know, I'm downstairs for like an hour and a half 
I don't know what's going on. And it was really stressful. I was like, I will never not call a client back like after today. Right. It's really hard to sit there and not know what's going to happen to you and whether or not I was going to go to South Bay that night or National Street. So I come upstairs and we all decided I wasn't going to say anything when I came upstairs. And uh, my lawyer, Max Stern, who was kind of took the lead in this case. Um, very well known. Very well known. Uh, uh, and a great guy. Defense lawyer here great in Boston. lawyer. Really a famous um, lawyer for in his own right. Like he deserves all the credit he gets. He was like, I'll do all the talking. And he spoke and the, the judge said something like, well, she was passionately representing her client. So I'll let her go. Something like that, which is somewhat absurd, right? Yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a lawyer. And I was let out and there was like a horde of people waiting for me, which really like ease the blow, I guess, to right. say it was nice right. to have people there to support you. So sort of, uh, I mean, you described it as kind of surreal, the whole experience. Yeah. My son found out through the babysitter. My son's 13. And so he was freaking out at home because he couldn't reach me or my husband and was like Googling it and watching stuff online. Right. So, 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 um, so let's just take a little bit of a step back. I mean, this was, again, kind of uh, – fallout from this weekend demonstrations, which were themselves getting a lot of attention and controversy around, you know, some people even saying that the counter demonstrators, you know, was counterproductive in terms of people arguing over whether to give attention to the straight pride parade itself. But but leaving that aside, the, the issue of then how the cases are handled uh, from the counter demonstrators who got arrested has really seemed to have... Uh, put a spotlight on a lot of tensions uh, that have been percolating since the election of the new Suffolk County DA, Rachel Rollins. And she was certainly outspoken immediately on Tuesday when Judge Senate uh, first uh, made clear that he was not prepared to uh, go along with or agree to, to these efforts by the prosecutors in, in uh, DA Rollins's office to move for dismissal. And, um, and so, I mean, it was clear that there's something bigger going on here. What, what, in your view, is this kind of exposing uh, in terms of tensions or what, you know, things going on in the criminal justice system here in Suffolk County right now? So um, just to back up a little bit, I've defended protesters for many years. In fact, just today, uh, the protesters who were arrested in Cambridge for protesting uh, the tech company's involvement in ICE, all of their cases were not arraigned not, and nothing went forward. I, I represented the Occupy protesters. They were all dismissed. And they, you know, occupied a park in Boston for, what, three months or something right. like that? All dismissed. It, it's always been the policy of the DA's office to dismiss protesters, even when it's a little bit above you know, what you would expect at a normal protest, as the allegation is in this case, as to some of them, not my client, but others. And so, your client is how old? Is your client um, is you say that. I, had, I hardly had any time to talk to her. Right. She's in her she's in her late 20s, early 30s. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think it's about the protesters, exactly what you're saying. It's about their opposition to Rachel Rollins. Rachel Rollins was elected and has been doing a phenomenal jo job. Honestly, uh, I was thinking about this. I've just been waiting for her to disappoint me because she's a prosecutor, right? Like I just expected to eventually be disappointed with her level of approach to reform in the criminal justice system, and she has yet to disappoint me. She has been amazing. And what she's doing is saying small-level offenses that are not long-term issues, not violent, not you know serious uh, disruptions to the community, they will not be 
arraigned for people without criminal records because even the fact of a simple arraignment can have lifelong consequences to somebody. For example, I have many clients who have charges pending. They can't apply for a job because a, a pending charge shows up on your court, even if you found not guilty of it eventually. I mean, so she's recognized the damage the criminal justice system can do to people, and she's taking a prosecutorial decision that she was elected to do by the city of Boston, and she's implementing it. And it's absolutely within her legal rights, and it's 100% not within the legal right of a judge to impose his political view in opposition to that. And, and that's really what's going on. So it seems like, uh, to sort of borrow from from your world, that he's sort of trying to litigate some of the yeah. – sort of issues he's, he's or political in, issues or things that, that the election, she keeps saying, you know, voters made a decision about about yeah. who they wanted in that office based yeah. on a pretty clear platform she put forward. Right. She listed all the charges she would not prosecute were she to become elected before she was elected, and then she implemented that memo. And he doesn't have a right to override the voters. He doesn't have, have a right to override the, will, override the will of the people. He's not allowed to be an activist judge in this situation. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, I mean, you said you've represented a lot of demonstrators. I was struck by uh, a comment that uh, a vice president, Calderon of the of the Boston uh, Police Patrolmen's Union, said to the Globe that her office really, in this case, wasn't acting that differently than her predecessors had. He admitted had. that. He admitted that. And, That's right. Uh, I mean, the quote in the Globe was, he said, this DA's office is doing the same thing, but the judge on the bench has taken a different position. Yeah. That's it. I'm, I'm happy he said that, actually, because that was really my point, too, that this is not something that is out of the ordinary at all. It's not unreasonable. And again, I, I, my, I've heard, although I don't know that maybe some cases involving a low level of violence were dismissed on Tuesday, but all the cases on Wednesday were very specifically and thoughtfully delineated by the DA's office. I was given a list in the morning. There were two names at the top. Those people were not getting dismissed because they involved assault and battery on the police officer. They were getting arraigned, and they were going to have to go through the system. Right. The next list were people, which my client was included of. It was approximately eight. Every single one of them was slated to be null pros because they were within that nondescript police Null pros is sort of a short like a Latin yeah. term, right? Or- right. They were to be null pros straight out, no penalty, no nothing, because of the fact that there was nothing to script about them in the police report. So no throwing of rocks, no throwing of... Uh, my al- I've heard allegations, although I haven't seen it, of urine. Uh, it's important to understand, by the way, that for everything the protesters did, the allegation is that there was two hours of pepper spray by the Boston Police Department. And, uh, you know, I haven't verified this, but I read online that it wasn't all the Boston police, because I, I will say that in the past I felt like Boston police officers we're certainly not perfect with dealing with protesters, but there's a level of respect with protests. You know, they stay to the side. They they respect the First Amendment rights of people. But in this case, there was one or two officers who were consistently and repeatedly doing the pepper spray, which caused a lot of the problems on, mm-hmm. at the arrest. At yeah. any rate, the last list was people to be no press, but only after community com, um, completing eight hours of community service. So there's a lot of thought put into this decision-making. Right, right. And... Um and if you're saying, uh, and we're, you know, that the, this sort of uh, handling of the case by the DA's office actually is not that much of a departure at all from past practice, is is it sort of a, I mean, do you think it's sort of, a, a, he's using it as a proxy for, I don't know, other policy changes she's she's talked about? I mean, this, it seems like in a way he's, even if he were going to 
wage a, a battle against her, he's sort of picking the wrong, the, wrong the wrong one to do. This isn't really an example of her, of a sharp departure from the practices of her predecessors. Right. And that's where I, I start, you know, blaming Trump, right? Like a lot of people joke about like, quote unquote, liberals blaming Trump, but it's, it's, the, it's the fact that this is a straight pride parade that also plays into this, which is part of this cultural war that's going on, you know, between Trump and um, everybody else. And I, I feel like even if this was a different issue, if this was an environmental protest, I don't think we'd even have him acting the same way that he's acting now. I think it has to do with the larger issues of what's going on in our society. And again, like, you know, I don't want to, I don't like it's I don't want to guess what the judge's motivation is. I don't know. But I feel like this would never have happened 3 or 4 years ago. Like this is just there's a certain amount of decorum and respect that lawyers try to give judges in the courtroom that and judges try to give lawyers in the courtroom that just was not happening today. And I've been, you know, he said something to the effect of I'm not expecting theater. I have been a trial lawyer for since 1995. I've done high profile cases um, on more than one occasion. Nothing's ever happened to me like this. I've never had this problem. And mm. um, and I've had judges dead wrong on the law before. And right. I mean, I wasn't there to hear it. I mean, from the accounts of it, though, when there was this back and forth, I mean, the one thing I was struck by is the times I've been in court, there is usually this kind of uh, complete discretion to the judge that they really rule rule the room, and people don't tend to, if they're told, that's it, we'll hear no more from you, they tend to to agree to that. Is that is that not the case? I mean, if if I had gotten what I feel like is an opportunity to make my case in just even a little bit more, just a, literally I needed one more 10 seconds more to say this one thing, maybe that I, that would have been the end of it. But, you know, the tape is the tape. It'll reveal what happened. I think it's pretty clear that, you know, I was not happy with what he was saying and his refusal to violate the law. But I can tell you that if it had been a gray area legal argument, if we had been arguing about something that was unclear in the law or that he had sound discretion to make a decision against me, we wouldn't have, this wouldn't have happened, but he was so dead wrong on the law. And, and he, Have you appeared in his court before? Do you have any I believe history? I've been in front of him, like, for minor things, but I don't remember any specific cases. Like, I've seen his face before. I can't remember. But I, I've everyone's heard of his reputation. And I think it's really important to understand this isn't about me getting handcuffed and brought downstairs and held for three hours. This is about a judge who is abusing his power, who... I've heard now other stories about this judge, and, and I think even more will come out about uh, his treatment of African-American defendants. There was a comment about how he refused to use the real name of a transgender pro uh, protester that was there. and She said her pronouns, and he didn't want to use those. And I've heard of, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but the day before, a protester didn't want to take off his hat. He was handcuffed and put into custody. He upped the bail of people who voluntarily showed up in court. And there are other criminal defense attorneys who have contacted us who have said, this is just the tip of the iceberg with this judge. And, and he's acts unlawful in a, in a fairly regular basis. And, and what happens to those defendants who don't have lawyers? I mean, I happen to be, you know, my husband's the former chair of MACDL. I happen to have sued Trump in 2017 and have a lot of media contacts and stuff as a result. And media was called right away and they showed up. Like, imagine the unpowerful in that situation. And and, and the, the case is now um, being taken to a, a justice of the Supreme Judicial Court, uh, right. the DA's office 
has uh, has filed a motion there. What do you what do you think will uh, what do you think is going to happen I there? I think uh, I believe it goes to Judge Graziano. That's what I've read. And um, he's a former prosecutor, and I think he will fully and one hundred percent understand the law. In and uh, I haven't met a prosecutor yet who sides with the judge in this case. So I'm hoping that he will see the law and um, apply it as it clearly is. I mean, is it? I've seen it sort of termed that things kind of everything got turned upside down. I mean, you're sort of saying, in a way, that his background as a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, you might be a little concerned in, in traditionally in cases going before a judge who served as a prosecutor. But in this case, you're saying uh, you think that prosecutors, which in fairness, Judge Senate had served as one as well, but that prosecutors really understand well this right. this issue of. Uh, it's kind of a separation of powers, I guess, right, in the right. end, about about who controls which aspects of judicial proceedings. Right. It, it, it is separation of powers. And so what – you know, that's one of the interesting questions. I, I forget where I read this, so I can't take credit for it. But somebody said, like, so he refuses to no pros. So who's going to prosecute the case? Because the prosecutors don't want to prosecute. What's going to happen when you go to pick a jury trial? <laughs> like, do prosecutors who are against prosecuting the case have to be forced to – go forward on the jury trial, it, it, it was, uh, I, I don't understand where he th- was going with the end of the case. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously tensions now between the DA's office and the police department on right. on, on, on issues. Do you f- sort of fear sort of going forward that this is uh, kind of the one example, but that we're going to be seeing more cases where our justice system here in Suffolk County is is going to be, uh, be subject to a lot of tumult and, uh, yeah. and, and, and uh, these kind of cases. You know, change is always painful. And I've been a criminal defense lawyer for 25 years. My first jury trial was a uh, police brutality trial where my client was viciously beaten by David Williams and uh, an officer who's now a been... Boston re- police yeah, officer. He's been removed, from, removed and put on back on the force four times now for excessive force-related issues. Um, change is a really difficult thing. It causes a lot of problems. We as criminal defense lawyers, you ask all of us, we will say we've been seeing problems with police since we've been doing lawyers. And um, not that that's where Rachel Rollins is in the case, but, but we've seen the effects of mass incarceration. We've seen the effects of lives devastated by an arrest that was dismissed a year and a half later for lack of probable cause. You know, we saw the Annie Dukin scandal and all those uh, defendants who were whose lives, they couldn't get jobs, they couldn't get housing, they couldn't get schooling, they couldn't get uh, student loans because of a drug arrest and come to find out it was fake drugs, fake tests. So whether or not people like the change that's coming about, change is always hard to project, and it, it's time for a change. And I think Rachel Rollins understands that very well, and she'll continue fighting. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much, Susan Church, for coming in and talking to us. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Thanks for listening. <laughs>